Line One brings you this special presentation of Out North's Mental Health Mosaics. Welcome to Mental Health Mosaics from Out North, a local arts nonprofit located on the unceded traditional lands of the Dana'ina people in Anchorage, Alaska. I'm Ann Hillman. If you've decided to listen to a show called Mental Health Mosaics, then you probably already know that mental health is an important topic. It always has been, and the pandemic has made it even more so. Maybe you know someone who's out and proud about their mental health issues, bad and good. Maybe you know someone who isn't. Maybe that someone is you. The idea behind Mental Health Mosaics is to dig deeper into the issues surrounding mental health using this podcast as well as art exhibits and online resources. We at Out North are trying to move beyond the important but short comments you often see on social media, like, it's okay to not be okay, and we need to take self-care seriously. Those are so true, but they just touch the surface. And as a warning, some, if not all, of the episodes contain triggers. We're talking about addiction, suicide, depression, trauma, and pain. But we're also talking about recovery, healing, coping, thriving, and joy. We're centering the voices of people with lived experience, like Ralph Sarah. I thought to myself, how can we help other people if we're not out there and proud of being in recovery, you know? Why can't we, you know, tell people our stories so they don't feel like they're alone out there? And Jared Mayer. Well, there's that sense of validation that someone recognizes a specific problem. It was difficult for me to not initially just still feel broken. And Sally Gussack. It's um the crippling depression. And sometimes it would be easier just to go back out on the streets. When I'm that depressed, it feels like I deserve it. All of these folks will be included in future episodes. So subscribe to the podcast on any podcast app, and you'll hear much more from them. Like so many other people, one in five adults in the U.S., in fact, I've dealt with my own share of mental health issues. I've gone through the fun process of trying to find an antidepressant that didn't cause more harm than good. I've been paralyzed by anxiety and fear when trying to hike up a trail or drive down the highway. But my experiences are limited and buffeted by my privilege. I'm economically stable. I'm white. I have insurance. I have a supportive wife who helps me through whatever is going on. And truth is, I even like my entire family. That's why this show isn't just filled with what I think is important. I'm following the guidance of an advisory board of people with a huge variety of lived experience. Some have experienced houselessness. Others have been institutionalized. Some are healers. Some are in recovery. All hold deep wisdom well beyond what I bring to the table. Through lengthy and personal conversations, the advisory board chose 10 topics for the first series of Mosaics podcasts. I'm also getting guidance through a partnership with NAMI Anchorage, the local chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. This is a group project. I'm just the voice leading you through it. You can read more about the advisory board and access other resources, including art and creative activities, on our website, mentalhealthmosaics.org. To start the series, I want to introduce you to Martha Binkley, who speaks very openly about what it's like to have a serious mental illness. She was born and raised in Alaska. Her family is from the Bethel area, and she spent some of her childhood in Queethlook. She identifies mostly as Yupik Eskimo, her words, as well as African American and Caucasian. We originally spoke in the summer of 2021. 
In 2007, when she was in her late 20s, she was diagnosed as having PTSD, though she says some doctors diagnosed her with bipolar disorder and others with schizophrenia. Labels are not always clear. But she says she knows she's seen the world differently since she was a child. I've always known I have PTSD since I was two and a half years old. It's been documented multiple times over the years since 07. But I didn't know younger, when I was younger, how to treat my PTSD or how to embrace it and accept it and actually, you know, embrace it and learn from it. She says she grew up feeling like an outcast. Martha spent hours teaching me about her life as we sat in the various hotel rooms she at that point called home. When we spoke, an agency was helping her seek long-term housing. She shared detailed, vivid memories from her infancy— and talked about what it's like to have hallucinations of really horrible events. Though she used to be a personal care assistant for elders, she's currently on full-time disability because of her mental health conditions, and has a conservator, which means she doesn't have control over her own finances. She says that sometimes that changes the way people treat her, but not always. When I go into GCI, they're like, oh, she has a conservator because it comes up red flagged on my, on my paperwork. So when they talk to me, they're not actually speaking to me directly. This last time I went into GCI, that young man, he spoke to me directly. He didn't look over at my daughter and go, um, which plan was that she wanted? And my daughter didn't have to look at me and say, Mom, which plan was that you wanted? With people who I deal with now, they don't necessarily all treat me like I'm a baby anymore, like I need to be coddled or, or be explained down to as much. She says she feels like she encounters the most challenges with the way medical providers treat her, arguably the most important people. But in the medical field, I mean, most people just, um, oh, you poor thing. Um, no, we'll get you some medicine. Medicine will help you. It'll work out. You know, just breathe. It's okay. But the, it's their tone. Oh, you poor little baby is what I hear, what it sounds like. So it's not like calming, it's no, condescending. Condescending, exactly. And I tell people, I said, if you didn't know that I had a mental health disorder, disease, or issues, I said, I know my files are red flagged um, to, you know, meaning, only tell meaning. me certain things about my own health. I said, that to me is illegal. I said, for me to have to wonder what you're telling my ex or if you call my daughter or my ex and instead of addressing me, I said, that's more than just rude. How am I to, to be attentive to my mental health if you don't tell me something? How am I supposed to know? I'm not clairvoyant. I can't read your mind. It's me the one taking the medicine. No one else taking it for me. I have to remind myself every single day. And it's so routine now that I'm not actually reminding myself every single day. But it's become a habit that I take my meds. Martha says taking her meds helps her to experience the world in the same way as most people. Without them, she sees things like tracers. I mean, most people are just like, what do you mean seeing tracers? I said, like, if you were to run really fast and have 10 of you running after you that look like a cut out of the dolls running, you know, that's what I see with tracers. I mean, I did that as an example when I was younger to a doctor. I said, this is what it looks like. Oh, tracers like lot. this. So it would be like there's a whole bunch of needles. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And is it just with people? It's, no, it's... Uh, items too. 
Mainly with people. Okay. Like, or if they're holding something that goes really fast, you know, like a... Mm. Sometimes I make the inference and refer back to, like, if you did a big bubble and turn around and there goes all the tracer bubbles after them. Oh. Yeah. Like, like, if there were ten versions of you yeah. chasing you. Lingering. Lingering right behind you. So exactly. Funny. I don't think it's technically hallucinating. I mean, I'm not seeing somebody that's not really there. It's just uh, I'm seeing multiples of them that I know, you know, it could just be the way my brain processes mm -hmm. things and distributes the, the information mm -hmm. to my opticals, my yeah. optical nerves, when I'm looking at something and then realize, oh, it's like a movie playing, and I'm like, oh, man, i got to shut the movie off in my head. Because <laughs> sometimes it'll come on automatically. Martha experiences life very differently than most people, and she knows it. She also knows that doesn't mean that she's less than anyone else, or that she's stupid, or that she should be pitied. Just because I have mental health issues doesn't define me as a person that way. Um, I don't let it define me as a person, or that it's a, a disadvantage to me. I look at it as rather an advantage that I have, that I can empathize with somebody else who actually is similar. You know, and you never know. Anybody, especially after this pandemic, whether it's over or not, um, there are going to be many with PTSD issues that have never been homeless before, never had to face such atrocities as, you know, whether or not you're digging in the dumpster for food or not. For most people who have never experienced that before, once they experience not, usually they end up getting diagnosed with PTSD of some sort. Our conversation went on even after the phone call. For Martha, talking about mental health isn't a challenge. It's part of her daily life that can't be ignored or sidestepped. I mean, even her phone provider knows that she has a diagnosis. You can read an essay Martha wrote about living with a mental health condition and see some of her self-portraits by going to mentalhealthmosaics.org. Sometimes the best way to help people start breaking the silence around mental health is through art and poetry. MC Mahogany Magnetic is an Anchorage poet, writer, and performer. She's also Mental Health Mosaic's poet-in-residence. She adapted a poem she originally wrote in 2015 for this episode. About life on the equinox. Like, I know the what is and what nots. Slung over bones and grave insights that cosmically spiral on late nights into places between spaces. I'm looking for traces of strength. I need help. I have lost my way. Don't think I'm going to make it another day. There are no beginnings and it never ends. Alone, isolated, loneliness, no friends. For all of my nerves are bad. I can't help but feel sad. I can't help but be funky. A no bath having food and television junkie. Laying around depressed on myself. I'm not the same as everyone else. It's just can't be me in bubbles with rainbows and troubles. From rising too high too fast. Burst, smash, pop, crash. My soul on ice, heart on fire. I sure do miss true desire. To feel better, 
So please come hang out with me later. Because right now, I'm a hot mess. Constant turmoil, I digress. Breaking silence. Fuckable. But to, to, to explain it, you know, life on the equinox, like, so being bipolar is like, you know, this constant balance between ups and downs, highs and lows, mania and depression. So this equinox, you know, in, in a sense, in terms of season, seasons and metaphors, it's like, you know, I know what is and, w- and what isn't. And, but however, you know, this is like, it's in my bones. It's, it's grave. It's like, it's chronic illness is, is what it is. And it doesn't, it doesn't go anywhere. And, and it's like this constantly spiraling up into mania, spiraling down in depression. And, and, and then here I said, so I'm looking for, for traces in between spaces is because like, Things are constantly moving in, in and in and out. My my emotions, my well being, my health. Um, you know the ideas that like the the suicidal ideations. It's like I'm just searching for strength in, in anywhere that I can find it in this like whirlwind of emotions that I'm constantly going to. And then like and like I said, it's chronic. It has no beginning and it has no end. So it just is there. And even though I have a support group. I have family. I have friends. I'm still alone in in my, in my thoughts and my feelings and, and what I'm going through. I think many people who talk about mental wellness, mental illness, will will say the same. No matter how much like support is there and the people that surround us is there, still feel like alone in in the struggle. This is Anne cutting in real quick. Mahogany actually gave me a line by line explanation of her poem. But I wanted to give you all a chance to think about it on your own, instead of including it all here. You can find Mahogany's complete explanation on the Mental Health Mosaics website, or read the text of the poem there to yourself. And yes, I am just trying to entice you to go there to check out all of our resources. But anyhow, back to the interview. Why is this poem breaking the silence for you? What made you associate this all together with breaking the silence? Like when so when I wrote this poem originally, I was lashing out, I was crying out, I was I would say like to the universe, and in the first version of this 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 poem, I was I was speaking to um, John Coltrane, Billie Holiday, and Gil Scott Heron, um, you know, just jazz musicians and, and, and poets and stuff. So just like, just crying out to the universe, crying out to the ancestors. I'm not going to be silent. I'm going to say something. So to, to break the silence and break it like abruptly and, and like definitively is, is what this poem does. Because like, it just, it's, it's very difficult for, for people. The first time I was involved in um, group therapy, I think it was around 2011. And it was about 20, maybe 30 people in this day room all day in, in group therapy. And out of all of those people, like maybe none of them, none of them could talk about their mental health outside that room because of their jobs, because of their families, you know, the stigma and, and, and all of those type of things, you know. 
And I necessarily wasn't in a position to do that either, but I was like, you know what? No matter what I do from here on out, I'm going to be vocal about my mental health and well-being for people who, who can't do it. And I mean, and it's a good thing that, that I am because like there, there are often times when I talk about mental health, like publicly, uh, I make it maybe like a post on social media about it and just say, just like, you know, there's just like 10 like likes and comments on this thing. Like, oh, cool. Right. But then there's like another like 15 people who don't like a comment on it, but they'll like privately inbox me or when I see them out in public or something, they just like call me on the phone. It's like, yo, Mahogany, like, thanks for sharing that experience. I mean, the stigma is so real. They don't even want to like hit the little like button, you know, because they don't want nobody to know that they like this idea, this conversation on mental health, like they identify with it in some way, shape or form. Is that deep? Right. And so and in, in knowing that I know that it's, it's important that I talk about it like openly for people who are not able to talk about it. And I have some other friends out there. I have another friend. I don't know where she's at. I think she's in North Carolina now. She's somewhere on the East Coast. She's a beautiful singer. Um, and she she openly talks about her struggles with, with sobriety and alcoholism, you know, uh, her struggles with depression and everything. And it's just, it's just wonderful. Like, you know, to know, like there are other mental health wellness warriors out there. There's other prayer warriors out there. Like, yeah, go ahead and do it or whatever. You help more people than you know, you never know who is listening. And when we talk about mental illnesses and stuff, we're talking about invisible things that you don't, see on the surface just because a person is all smiles and they glitter and gold don't mean they're like you know tar and dirt <laughs> and yuck all underneath all of that and everything so it's just it's just important so like with this poem it's like you know breaking the silence on that not just for for myself but but for others too and then the space can be made safe but it only happens when we speak up and speak out, you know. Otherwise, you just, like, suffer, like, silently alone in, in your own thoughts and feelings. And it gets really rough. And a lot of times, you know, many um, suicides and suicide attempts, is, it, it's, it comes from isolation. If there's, like, you know, different, you know, different components to what, what gets a person to, to, that, to that point of want to cause self-harm to itself, the one thing that that final thing is like isolation, right? And and then also knowing that, like, I knew a young person that that like you know, like left here, you know, a few few years ago. But they made sure that they was totally isolated, even though they told you know they you know kind of sent these signals out at the last minute that they was gonna do this. But they also made sure they was in a, in, in a space where no one could get to them. And so they could just, you know, pass on as the way they did. So, but they felt isolated long before that, you know. And so we don't want people to feel isolated under no circumstances. That was MC Mahogany Magnetic talking about her poem, Break in Silence. Many people who struggle with mental health issues or trauma often feel alone. 
Anchorage artist Donalyn Rojas Bowers is trying to prevent that by opening up about her own experiences with self-harm. She says hearing other people's stories helped her heal, and she wants to do the same for others. My name is Donalyn Rojas Bowers. I'm a first-generation Filipino-American. So my mom was born in the Philippines, and my dad is from here in the U.S., and so I'm half Filipino, and I'm really proud of that. This is Donalyn's story. So I had a complicated, like, I don't know, teenagehood. (laughs) Um, And my my family had no had no part to do with this at all they they were loving and caring and they did everything they're supposed to do but i was groomed on the internet um by people who were definitely pedophiles yeah definitely pedophiles um and they they groomed me from the time i was like 13 to the time i graduated high school normally it's not even that they're trying to get you to do a specific thing um, every time they try to groom you. It's like they're trying to get you into this mindset where you feel isolated, where you feel like you can't talk to anyone. You feel like everyone hates you or you feel like everyone's against you. Donalyn said that she was emotionally manipulated and sexually abused all through high school. Right after she graduated, she left her family to be with one of the predators who was eventually arrested. Donalyn says that while the abuse was happening, she started cutting herself. I'm not really sure why I started doing that. Um, I can't remember the first time. I think that a lot of people that self-harm don't necessarily have, like, whenever I do it, I don't necessarily have my right mind. Like, it's, it's kind of like dissociating from, like, you know, what's really going on. So sometimes it's hard to remember um, that stuff. But I remember that I was doing it in high school and... And it was mostly around the times that um, that guy would pop into my life whenever he would stop talking to me and then start talking to me again and stop talking to me and start talking to me. It it kind of coincided with that. And for me, like seeing those scars can be really painful sometimes just because it reminds me of a time in my life where I was so confused and felt so alone. Donalyn says She didn't start processing the trauma of her experiences until she went to mental health therapy as part of her cancer treatment a few years after high school. I I wouldn't ever say that I would want to forget completely or not ever talk about this stuff that happened to me again, because then it would take away a part of me because that's something that I went through and it's made me a stronger person. It changed who I am. And I think that even though it's something that's really traumatic and quite horrendous. Um, It's a part of me now, and it's something that I have to deal with. And so it's something that I, you know, want to talk about. And like, so my old therapist used to say to me, it's like having a closet full of stuff. And even though you don't necessarily want to throw away the stuff in the closet, you do want to organize it so that when you open the closet, it's not just pouring out, you know, like you want to have it in a controlled sense. So like, Although these horrible things may have happened to me, and I have to stuff it all in the closet sometimes just to be sane, (laughs) Um, it's, you know, it's something that's like you need to be able to access it because it's not something that you want to forget because that's, it's something that, you know, you want to remember because you don't ever want that to happen again. Therapy is also helping Donalyn understand her self-harm behaviors. She's open about the fact that she still hurts herself sometimes. She knows changing that behavior is hard. I think that 
a lot of times when I was self-harming, it wasn't necessarily about trying to feel something. It was like I was upset and I wanted a way to like express that in a way that felt like substantial. And it's not like I didn't feel anything. I was feeling sad. I was feeling stressed. I was feeling upset. Um, but I wanted to feel like some sort of like release of like something. Like I just wanted to feel like there was something else that I could control in my life. And that's that's what it led to. It led to me cutting myself, which I never um, intended to um, commit suicide through the cutting. It was never that kind of self-harm. It was just the like purely like for the pain self-harm. Donalyn doesn't cut herself anymore, but sometimes she still hurts herself in other ways. Self-harm is a really broad category. She says it's hard behavior to stop because sometimes she still feels like she deserves the pain and she disassociates. It's it's kind of like you get to this point where you are so distressed and upset that you can't think about anything else and it's like you're not even there. It's yeah. like you're just existing and then your body starts doing these things. It's like you want to not do it because it hurts and it doesn't feel good. But then there's something inside of you that's like, you have to do this. You have to do this. And that's still something I'm dealing with from from all the grooming and still something I talk to my therapist about. Donalyn says she's open about her self-harm behavior because being open helps her hold herself accountable. She creates art about it and shares her story. She's no longer ashamed of the scars on her arms because they show her strengths. I went through this and I'm still here. And other people go through this and they're still here and we're strong. And it's amazing. You can check out Donalyn's art on Instagram at Donalyn Bowers. We'll be back with more Mental Health Mosaics after this quick break. You're listening to Line One from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line One on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to start accelerating your child's future through education? The Alaska Native Science and Engineering Program is expanding its reach with new opportunities in Juneau and Southeast Alaska. With ANSEP's Acceleration Academy, high school students can earn college credit, save thousands of dollars in college costs, and experience fun, hands-on learning. ANSEP, it's a better way to learn. Learn more and enroll at ansep.net slash acceleration. This message sponsored by ANSEP. You're listening to Mental Health Mosaics from Out North. I'm Ann Hillman. Martha, Mahogany, and Donalyn are all at unique places in the recovery and are willing to be open about their mental health. Others aren't quite there yet. So how do you start conversations about mental health? To get some advice on how to do that, I spoke with Parinita Shetty. She's a counselor with VOA Alaska, an organization that provides therapy and support for children and teenagers. She grew up in India and now works in high schools in Anchorage. A lot of this conversation is talking about youth, but the pointers are applicable to everyone. 
I guess growing up, it was never part of, at least in my culture, it's not part of something we talk about. Mental health is not commonly spoken about. It's becoming more of a conversation that is more mainstream right now with more celebrities talking about it and the younger generations being more open to it, especially on social media. That's absolutely awesome. And it's exciting because it's still so, there's so much stigma around talking about mental health and talking about your own needs or wanting to fulfill your own mental health needs. So coming from a collectivistic culture that kind of feels like you're being selfish or you're going against the culture because you're standing up for yourself or talking about your own needs. But that's not the case. It's not selfish to ask for help. It's not selfish to want to better your mental health. So when you say mental health, like that means so many different things to so many different people. What do you mean when you say it or when you hear it? So the way I look at it is... um, the brain is a part of your body and like how and how we take care of our physical health. We need to do things to maintain our physical health. And then there are days that we're not doing so well and we need to put in more effort to take care of our health. I look at mental health similarly in terms of it's something that's an ongoing thing that you have to work towards. Even if you're having, you know, a great week and this week has been fabulous, it's still important to make some space for yourself to take care of yourself, do some self-care. If you're having a tough time, then putting in some more effort by talking to people, seeking professional health, it's really key. So why is looking after yourself not selfish? I would say because all of us deserve to be happy. All of us deserve to find a connection with others, to find love. We deserve to be loved. We are worthy. It gets difficult to think that way when you're struggling with anxiety or depression. It's your brain is trying to trick you into thinking that you are alone or this is endless and there's no one out there who's going to understand me. And having these conversations, it helps you feel like there is someone who can understand me. There is someone I can connect to. So it's really important for me, at least, to reach out to people around me, and also support people who reach out to me. (laughs) So that's why I don't feel like it's selfish or (laughs) in any way self-serving. It is something that we put in effort to take care of people we love. And loving ourselves also includes taking care of ourselves. Oh, I've never heard it framed that way before, (laughs) but I really appreciate that a lot. I really appreciate that a lot. So... If someone either, if someone comes from a family where bringing up mental health doesn't happen, like someone in their family says it's a weakness or the culture around them says it's a weakness. I often hear that, especially with men. How do you move past that and bring it up anyhow? Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of people think that not talking about it is going to help it go away or they can push it away by not talking about it Uh, but it's the opposite the more you talk about it the more um, it lessens that stigma and it lessens the uh, intensity of what you're feeling that shame or guilt you're feeling for reaching out to someone and that's a big stereotype that if you're seeking mental health it means that you're weak or um, you're crazy or things words like that are used and it's so unhelpful and it's just 
getting that message out that it's not weak to look after your mental health. Uh, it takes a lot of courage to open up to someone. Opening up to someone involves being vulnerable, talking about your feelings, and that is really hard and takes a lot of courage. So it's the exact opposite of being weak, if you ask me. But yeah, and having someone, a trusted adult, a school counselor, a coach, a teacher, a family member, a friend, anyone around you that you can just start having those conversations with. And then if you feel like you need more help or more intensive help, you can go to someone who's a professional. At our work, at least at VOA, we have peer support, we have case managers. So if it's not just the counselor that they're having one-on-one -on -one services with, there is a peer support specialist involved who helps with educational stuff, driver's license, <laughs> getting employment, so life skills. And then we have family support programs that help the families who feel like they don't know what to do to help mm. the clients, helping the families feel more supported so that they can support the client as well. Because I guess it goes, goes back to even what you touched on earlier, that we are we as humans are community, we as humans are a collective, and so supporting not just the individual who may be struggling, but everybody around them as well is also really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of focus on self-care these days on social media, oh, which I everywhere. absolutely love. But also, as humans, we strive to be heard and seen. We need that connection with others to survive. So it's self-care and that connection with yourself but also working on that connection with others. That's really important. That makes sense. And it almost seems like, from what you're saying, well, a couple things have really jumped out at me. One, if we're taking care of ourselves and taking care of our mental health, that doesn't just mean talking to a therapist. It also means getting what you need to survive. So a driver's license, a job, and feeling like you're part of something bigger. Mm -hmm. And it also sounds like, like if we start reframing this as, I'm courageous by talking about it, that's even a way you could start the conversation. Yeah. Does, does that work? Have you, youth or adults, can they say, hey, listen, it's taking a lot of my strength to tell you this, but... I have had a few <laughs> students who have had to speak to their parents about or they had to convince them that they needed mental health services and they were advocating for themselves and that was wonderful and sometimes they don't have the words to say that but helping them find those words and to speak their own truth basically so yes i i have been inspired by some of my students who have been able to get their parents on board that that has been really nice to see what advice would you give other youth or adults if they need to get somebody else on board? I would say just, you don't have to start off immediately by heavy topics or mental health. You can start off with a conversation, check in and see how they're doing and then maybe mention how you're doing. And especially with kids who have to convince their parents, it's, it's helpful for parents to understand where they're coming from. Sometimes... This resistance is more about how they perceive mental health and what their own biases are rather than what is happening with the child. So for a child to be able to just have those conversations, starting off with smaller conversations and then explaining what they're going through can sometimes help get parents on board. Okay. Is it sometimes the other way around that parents have to be convince their kids, hey, 
be great if you could talk to someone or open up to someone? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And especially when they're younger and it's more difficult for them to feel like they have any kind of control and then they have an adult or their parent telling them you have to go to therapy. That can be a little of a power uh, <laughs> dynamic issue where the child feels that they're just being controlled by a parent and the parent feels like the child's not listening to me because they're disrespecting me or I don't have control over them. So just having conversations more in terms of there's nothing wrong with you. So when we use you statements like you are rebellious or you are acting up, it makes people feel defensive. So starting with I am concerned about you're not sleeping well or you're not, you've not been eating, you've been more. So I am concerned that you might not be getting the support you need from me and um, would you like talking to someone else who can help you with this? I like that. I'm concerned I may not be giving you the support that you need. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, so clearly coming from a place of caring. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because that is what it is. Parents are worried about their children and they do want them to get support. It's just, with family, it's very easy to... <laughs> Uh, step on each other's toes, exactly how to push each other's buttons. Uh, and we get stuck in those cycles, that cycles of communication that we're used to. So stepping aside from that and saying that I'm saying this from a place of concern and this is coming from a place of love and caring and I want to be able to support you. And it seems like something that like even a peer can say to a peer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's something you can tell a friend also because... You can be there for a friend, but at some point, if you feel like this is over your head or you're not qualified to deal with this, you don't have to be your friend's therapist. You just, <laughs> you can support them without having to talk about heavy stuff. You can, like I said earlier, starting with smaller check-ins, smaller conversations, being there for a friend, regular check-ins, going out for a movie, going out to get something to eat. And if you feel like there is something that you are not equipped to deal with, then suggesting that it sounds like this has been really hard for you. Do you feel like talking to a professional might help you? Mm -hmm. But really starting with connections, mm -hmm. because even just those connections really yes. are supportive. Mm -hmm. So what happens if you're, like you had mentioned earlier, how coming from India, people don't talk about mental health. If you're from a culture or working, talking with someone from a culture where those conversations aren't open things. How do you do it? And I realize this is going to be different for every culture, but how do you do it in respectful ways where you're honoring w where someone is from, who someone is with their identity, but also taking this step towards being open? Mm -hmm. And that's a great question. The first thing I would check is what is my own cultural competency? What is what are my cultural values and what have I grown up with that have led me to assume things about different cultures? So what are my assumptions that I'm uh, bringing to the conversation before I even have that conversation with the, with the person in front of me? And being aware of that is the first step to say that this might be a blind spot for me or this might be an area of growth for me where I can learn more or I need to learn more and where can I find more information on this and also just 
before assuming something is better to ask and it's always helpful to ask um and i recently read something on social media it was curiosity uh breeds compassion and judgment breeds resentment and i really love that and i feel like it's really <laughs> uh applicable to cultural conversations and multicultural conversations mm-hmm. So at least in for us as therapists also being more aware people's method of healing like i've mentioned before different people have different ways of coping um we might have someone who says that they find it more helpful to be involved with a spiritual or religious leader so including that as part of treatment and not focusing just on conventional western cultural ways of dealing with mental health so being open to other perceptions or other mm-hmm. beliefs on healing and uh what other i'd love to hear more about that healing like different methods of healing So I would say at least in some cultures and in my culture also there's a lot of focus on our soul and our body related to mental health it's not just a biomedical issue it's a community issue that connection with others and healing our body and finding ways to listen to our body and there's a lot of research on this as well on how our body gives us signs when something's not wrong with our mental health our body is giving us signals so listening to those signals and finding ways to um i guess manage or cope with things mm-hmm. by being more in tune with your body yeah that's a <laughs> tough one at least speaking from personal experience that is a very tough one for me mm-hmm. <laughs> okay that all makes sense i really appreciate the make sure that you check your own assumptions check your own biases mm-hmm. when you're approaching these conversations mm-hmm. i know that there's no step by step guide mm-hmm. i wish there was a user manual for these conversations <laughs> <laughs> but how would you start it especially if you see someone struggling in yeah so if it's a friend i would say being there for the friend consistently and sometimes your friend might not want to share something that's personal or deep and just understanding that maybe you're not the only person that they're talking to but it's not about you at that moment and the way they react is not personal mm-hmm. so just being there for them consistently um and regularly checking in on them making sure that you're doing things if you have a hobby that both of you enjoy doing activities together and that's a great way to just see how they're doing and if you are concerned make sure you're opening that avenue for having that conversation when they are ready to have it and a lot of times we do have similar experiences with others that makes that helps us relate to their issues so if they are hesitant about talking about their own issues maybe starting the conversation by saying that this is something that i experienced and this is how i dealt with it or th- this was something that i was struggling with and while having that conversation making sure that you're not really saying that if i were in your place <laughs> this is what i would do uh avoiding advice giving and just being there to support them and sharing your story to help them mm. share their story rather than as a way to give advice or fix their problem for them. Um that is a fine line, isn't it? <laughs> it Easily is. crossed fine line. <laughs> it is. Because 
even if we have similar experiences, it's still not the same. Pranita spoke a lot about breaking the silence around mental health with people you know. But what about with strangers? What happens when you encounter someone who is clearly experiencing some sort of mental health issues in public? How do you help them? Should you? To talk about this, in the summer of 2021, I went to a place where everyone is supposed to be welcomed no matter what their situation in life. The public library. Ziona Brownlow is a community resource coordinator for the Anchorage Public Library. Her role is to help connect people with resources like food or housing. Just like anyone can look for books or use the computers, anyone can walk in and speak with her and her colleague, Rebecca Barker. And there's just these certain barriers that other settings might come with that the library just doesn't really have. I think we have our own unique barriers, but it's such a neutral setting that I feel like it allows people to show up as their whole selves. They're not presenting in a certain way so it's documented how they would like it to be, or they're not presenting in a certain way so that you do give them access to this resource. Like They know that if they come to the library, like I have a question and it's probably going to get answered. One of the people answering those questions is Alaska Collection librarian Sarah Prescott. She spends much of the day interacting with patrons and answering questions ranging from where do I get information on the 17th century French nuns to how do I seek housing? She regularly meets people from all walks of life who are having mental health crises. So it it really depends on each patron. So if you have a patron that's having a mental health crisis, check in with them. Hey, are you doing okay? That's, of course, after you've checked in with yourself. Am I okay with this? Am I okay to help this patron? Move forward. Are they okay? Is there anything I can do to help you today? Calmly as you can. If someone's yelling, that's really hard. If someone is at, you know, what Rebecca called a 10, sometimes an 11, um, coming in with, hey, are you doing all right? And you're calm, like SNL NPR voice is what I think of it as. How are you doing today? Sometimes they'll tell you right away, I've got this, I've got this, I've got this, and I just can't. A lot of times it's, get out of my face. All right, I will get out of your face. Then you have to analyze that situation of, is this interfering with anybody else's use of the library? And that's the key part. If it's a situation where, again, someone's just pacing back and forth, they're not interfering with anybody's use of the library. If they're yelling at other patrons, that's interfering with their use of the library. So being able to understand that difference and how you move forward with that. If they're yelling at other patrons, then you really can just tell them, I'm sorry, you can't yell at other patrons in the library. Let's come over here to this open space over here and, and see what we can do. Again, from there, if they follow you, then at that point, I might call CRC team. That's the community resource coordinators, like Zayana and Rebecca. They help everyone, not just people who are houseless. You want to do everything you can to de-escalate a situation, and sometimes it's successful. Sometimes it's not, because that's just not where that person is that day. You have to be non-judgmental. You cannot tell the person that, well, you're wrong. There's nobody talking to you. You know, don't do that. <laughs> um, and sometimes we do call security. If it's become a situation where like CRC is not available, you've used all the tools in your toolbox to try to get to the heart of what this person is experiencing, and it's just not a good day for them to be in the library. So we'll discuss 
options. Usually it's just, let's try again tomorrow. And they'll come back and they'll be fine. It'll be fine. And sometimes you can get them to talk about what it is they need and you can get them to that resource, whatever that looks like. I did sit with one woman for I think two hours just having a panic attack. She saw someone in the library that was in the community, someone from her past, and it, it's night and day. You can't control panic attacks and might have made other patrons uncomfortable, but she couldn't see them. When you're having a panic attack, it's fog. You don't really understand what's happening. So you sit with a person and say, yeah, I'm here. I will be here when you need me. And in her case, we called emergency services because she needed that assistance. And that was the right call in the moment. Sarah's story has a lot of pieces to it. One point that was emphasized over and over by all three women was that when you're working with a person who may need help, you need to look into yourself first. Zayana elaborates on this. She says people in public-facing roles in the community need to understand why they react to people and their actions in certain ways. She says if someone says they can't work with or help a person, she wants to know why. Well, I think the first thing I would ask them is like, why is that making you uncomfortable? Because that's important for me to know, right? Does this person remind you of your uncle that you have sexual trauma with? That's important for me to know. And maybe you won't disclose all of that, but that's different than, and, and it's important to differentiate. Is it this or is it, I'm scared because this is a large person or I'm scared because they're speaking to me in such a loud voice. That's something I personally struggle with. So this might be something like I have to ask myself, like, why do I not want to serve this customer? Oh, okay, because I have my own personal biases, as humans do, and this person is checking those boxes for me. So the next step is, one, like I've already acknowledged what it is for me. Is it something that I can move past? Rebecca says you have to assess your biases because that changes how you view what's happening around you when someone is acting differently. So much of that depends on who's telling the story and how, right? And who is the main character in the story? You see it one way and it's, yes, this was dangerous, this was violent, this was et cetera. Versus if you see it another way, it's like this was illness, this was disability, this was lack of empowerment to access resources, this was isolation and adapting. And I think just being aware that like discomfort means a lot of different things. It's almost an unhelpful word other than, okay, it means more examination is needed. I think it's like discomfort might be the, the like lived equivalent of when a researcher says more studies needed because you got to get a little bit deeper in there because there is discomfort that's based on actual harm or actual risk. And then there's discomfort that's based on displacing privilege or just pressure to think of something a different way. Those are both discomfort can be used both those ways. So we have to examine the codes that we're using when we talk about those things. I think the reason why I emphasize checking in with yourself and exploring like that discomfort so much is because there is so much power in how we describe somebody's behavior and how we document something happening. This is Ziona again. The words that we use to describe this experience could be either what makes or breaks APD being called or what makes or breaks a charge actually being pressed. And because we are human, we are subject to being fallible to to not being objective or to overemphasizing something or to underemphasizing something. And I think that's I think that's the, the reason why I emphasize that so much is because especially in a position of power, when we are writing incident reports, when we are documenting in medical charts, when we, you know, are are making police reports, it's really important how we communicate things because 
what somebody could be experiencing that is observed to be dangerous or offensive, that person who is experiencing this, right, who you're observing, like they could be experiencing something that's so scary and it's resulting in them acting in a way that's peculiar and now you're scared because this behavior is peculiar. Meanwhile, this person is scared, is without resources and is going through this experience while also now being observed and, and that's being documented and then whatever subsequently happens from there. So how do we make sure that what happens from there doesn't turn out badly for anyone? Rebecca puts forth a suggestion that anyone can use. You have to get curious about what's going on. And I think one of the key questions that's usually repeated in trauma-informed care is how to frame that question from what's wrong with you to what is happening with you or what happened with you um, that you're in this situation, whether it's maybe you're yelling, maybe you're throwing rocks, maybe you are pacing or agitated. That person's going through something. And does that mean that you need to run up and give them a hug? No, that's not appropriate. You don't have that relationship with them. So let's get curious about what's going on. Do we recognize that this is a safe environment? Is there anything that is unsafe about this? Or is this person just pacing back and forth and talking to themselves? Can you maybe say, oh, hi, excuse me, can I help you with anything? Can you just gently, can, if somebody's at a 10, can you bring a two and a half and, and just say, oh, hey, what's going on? Get curious and kind and give them a respectful amount of space. Nobody wants to feel hounded. At any point, personally, I don't even get any help from shopping or something like that. I'm, don't talk to me. So let's have that empathy and shared experience and just go for just like anybody else. Hey, what's going on? Are you okay? Just check in. And if, you're, if they're fine, then they're fine. And let that difference just exist. Rebecca, Zayana, and Sarah all acknowledge that even if just treating people with dignity and respect is a straightforward idea, that doesn't mean it's always easy to do. We each carry with us our own grief, stress, trauma, and joy, and our own mental health issues. This isn't an us versus them thing. We all have mental health. For Sarah, she has to weigh how her own anxiety affects the way she perceives situations. So I have lived with anxiety forever. I'm pretty open about that. And I've learned in, say, the last 10 years or so that I need to check in with myself is this a me problem or is this a bigger problem? Am I anxious right now because something's telling me I should be anxious or because there's a conflagration in front of me and there are many people in danger? Like figuring out where it is on that spectrum. So what really helped me is to do it in situations that were low stakes. You know, how do I feel about everybody in the room today? Okay, okay. Oh, I'm getting a weird vibe from this person over here. Okay, what's... And you do those little check marks in situations where we are safe and you don't have to make any split-second decisions. And so that way, when you do come to a situation that's maybe a little bit higher stakes or you need to make a fast decision, like it's just muscle memory in your brain. And you can just go through that checklist in three seconds and do that quick check-in with yourself. And that's something that I think anybody can do. Just not out loud necessarily. You don't want to be walking through Costco. How do I feel about that person at the end of the aisle? Don't do that. But you know, in your brain, you know, or maybe journal some things about it, especially if you have an interesting situation out and about one day and really reflect on it. So that way, when it comes time, it's, you're not even thinking about it when you check in with yourself. Sarah says we also need to grapple with some society-wide ideas about mental health that create barriers for sympathy and acceptance of ourselves and others. I think we need to move past this myth of people who are experiencing houselessness or mental health issues just aren't up to the task or that they're not trying hard enough or that they're not working hard enough. That is 
not true. It's just not. And to be clear, Sarah is not saying that everyone who is houseless has mental health issues. That's definitely not true. Nor is everyone who has experienced a crisis in public or in private worried about housing. Have you ever cried uncontrollably in public and just desperately hoped no one would see? I sure have. And it sucks. Also, I've got an amazing support network. And have you ever had library security chastise you for misbehaving? Yeah, that's me again. Apparently you shouldn't take off your shoes in public because it's against fire code. What I'm getting at here is that we all have times when we need support or when we just need to be left alone. We all have times when maybe we're being perceived as acting differently. I think that we need to recognize that the toughness that is part of our identity needs to include knowing when to ask for help, that it's okay to ask for help, that it is okay to recognize and say out loud that you need help with something. After putting together most of this episode, I sat down with Martha to see what she thought of it and of the librarian's suggestions. Her reaction to Sarah was immediate. But most of that probably isn't her training at her job. It's just the type of person she is. That's very unique. That is very commendable and admirable. And then, as with most conversations with Martha, we jump straight into the next tangentially related thing. If you need help with something, like breaking the silence around mental health, you can find more resources at our website, mentalhealthmosaics.org. If you want to start breaking your own silence right this minute, or find out more about helping others who are in immediate crisis, stop listening to this and call 988. That's the new nationwide mental health crisis line with people who are trained to listen to others in emotional distress and to those who support them. Thank you for listening to Mental Health Mosaics, a project about North. You can find more episodes by searching for Mental Health Mosaics on any podcast app. This episode was edited by Susie Buchanan with audio mixing by Dave Waldron and Tobin Shelby. Aria Phillips wrote our theme music, and I'm your host and producer, Ann Hillman. Special thanks to Jason Lassard with NAMI Anchorage and Aaron Willihan with Out North for reviewing this episode. We received funding from the Alaska Mental Health Trust, the Alaska Center for Excellence in Journalism, and the Alaska State Council on the Arts. Check out mentalhealthmosaics.org for more resources and a free downloadable mental health coloring book. Thanks for listening. The views expressed on this program are those of the host and participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Learn more about Line 1 and listen online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media.